Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is Frank Marks. If you want to understand the science that underpins the forecasting of hurricanes today, where that science comes from, how far it has advanced in the last several decades, and where it's going, you can't do any of that without learning who Frank is, because he's been at the center of all of it. Frank has spent his whole career at the Hurricane Research Division of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He's been the director of it for about 20 years, till he recently became part-time in phased retirement. For context, HRD doesn't make the forecasts. The National Hurricane Center, on the other side of Miami from them, does that. But HRD does the underlying research to understand how hurricanes work, with the objective of making the forecasts better. So, one of the things HRD does is fly airplanes through hurricanes to gather in-situ data that is used both in research and in forecasting. To quote up front one statistic about Frank that he shared in the conversation, he personally has flown through over a hundred different storms and flown through hurricane eyes over 500 times, sometimes through the eye of the same storm more than once. To me, that number gives a visceral sense of just how deep Frank's engagement is with this particular atmospheric phenomenon, the tropical cyclone, aka hurricane. But it would be deeply unfair to leave it there. Frank is a distinguished scientist who has published 139 papers, mentored a great number of junior colleagues, won all kinds of awards, and been active in the field in every way someone can be. Maybe most important, he has done some big things to move the science forward. As a prominent example, at the start of his career, Frank started working on using airborne Doppler radar to see hurricane structure up close in a way that nothing else can. We trace his development of that science and technology through its critical role more recently in the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Project. That, in turn, HFIP, is a major national effort that Frank has also led since he conceived it in the early 90s through its actualization over the last decade and a half as director of HRD. And HFIP continues now and has made substantial progress in what was a long-standing problem of improving forecasts of hurricane intensity. We started at the beginning, of course, with Frank's childhood in New York's Hudson Valley, where he became a meteorologist in high school and through his graduate studies at MIT before he went to NOAA in 1980. And besides science, we talk about institutions, scientific communication, including talking down people who want to hit hurricanes with nuclear weapons, and other topics. As he describes his achievements, Frank gives credit to many others, his mentors, peers, junior colleagues, and so on and he describes being fortunate to be in the right place at the right time on multiple occasions. But what comes across to me overall is someone who is able to make the most of the opportunities and who knows how to lead with humility, curiosity, and care for others. Anyway, this was a really good one. There's no one who knows more about hurricanes or the people and institutions around them than Frank, or who has done more to improve forecasts, thus saving lives and property. So with that, here's my conversation with Frank Marks. First of all, thanks for doing this, Frank. Great to talk to you. I've, I, you know, we've known each other a little bit for a long time, but not, not that well. And of course, I want to get into your biography. But first of all, just because, I mean, I know this is not going to come out for a little while, so this won't be as timely when it come out, comes out. But what happened with Hurricane Otis? Yeah, I have my opinion. You know, one of the goals 
that we've been struggling with for the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Program, or what we call HFIP in NOAA, is one of the long-term goals we set was to do a better job on predicting rapid intensification. But they're rare events. So, you know, they're so rare that our characterization of them is very minimal. Um, I will say that Otis was a surprise um, to a lot of us. I happened to be flying Tammy most of the time. Otis was doing its thing. Uh, I got home and it was like, what happened? You know, I have all these emails. I typed into one of the chat boards. I said, you know, I, I have a lot of theoretician friends, and I've been bugging them for about 10 years now to tell me how fast. Is there a limit on how fast a storm can intensify? I mean, really, it's the mass field. How fast can we evacuate the mass field? And I, I know that theoretically it has to have something to do with inertial stability and has to do something with brunt isolate. Uh, the two coupled together have to dictate that rate. And we also know from our work and flying and characterizing these systems that almost 85% of rapid intensifications start from the storm to hurricane, major hurricane. So 85% of them do this. That wasn't a surprise. The surprise was, I guess we'd think it was 100 millibars in 24 hours. Okay, so that's a guess because I don't think there were pressure measurements. So I always question that. But it was unusual definitely unusual. The answer to your questions, I have, those are my impressions. I know that they can happen quick once it does. I know it's, you know, we've been trying to predict it and obviously the models didn't get it this time. So, you know, that's a work in progress. That's what I can say about it. We're still trying. We're doing better, but we're not there yet. Yeah. I mean, a hundred millibars. Yeah. And something like around a hundred knots too. There was only one mission. The Air Air Force flew one only mission in there. So, you know, we'd only have one data point and then the landfall. So, you know, I don't know how good the measurements are in that area. I mean, I've been to Acapulco many times, but flying um, and the airport's on the south side of the the city where the storm came ashore. So I would hope they have ops, but I don't know. I haven't seen it. Yeah, no, what I meant was the NHC uh, best, well, it's not best track yet, whatever the operational track showed. An increase of, I think, 95 knots in 24 hours to go with 100 millibar pressure drops. That's just a really shocking uh, number. I mean, yeah. do you think about about the one mission? Do you think if there had been more that it might have been better chance of catching what was happening? Yes. Uh, that's one thing that we've definitely found through the Hurricane Forks Improvement Program is, and why I was not able to do this last Monday was that when we collect the airborne data, our estimates are much better. The model does performs much better. And one of the problems we have in the specific is we get very rarely the type of data we get in the Atlantic to initialize the models. You know, so yeah. it's going to be an interesting discussion at the HFIP workshop in two weeks to see what people have to say about it. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry not to be there. That that should be interesting to have that just a short time after this. Happened. Yeah. I was just going to make one more point. People think the best track is the track. It's not. It's the best. (laughs) And best depends on the data we get into it. So, you know, one thing we have to do is that, you know, the Hurricane Center always goes back at the end of the year to reevaluate what their working best track is. And then they do the best job they can to complete it. And it's just the best. It's not true. It's the best. Right. And the one we have now isn't the best yet because they haven't done that. I mean, they just did it, you know, what they can do on right. the fly and they don't haven't had time to look at everything. But yeah, all I wanted to say is, you know, this is supposed to be a, not about Otis, but about you. So 
Um, although, but that just happened. So I, you know, you're the best expert I have to ask, but, um, so let's get to you. So <laughs> where you're from originally. I grew up in the nice little Hudson Valley town of Peekskill, New York, actually halfway between Yorktown Heights, where IBM was headquartered, and Peekskill, New York on the river, about 50 miles north of where you are, 45 miles maybe north of where you are right now. And I grew up on, in those days, we're talking late 50s, early 60s, it was kind of rural. There was some suburbia growing there at the time. I grew up on a farm. Um, in that area where my dad planted a garden. My dad was a butcher, worked for A&P down in Ossining. And, uh, you know, we had a nice oh, yeah. place to live. And, you know, it was very pleasant. In the summer, a lot of people from New York City moved up and spent the summer up in our area and got to meet a lot of different folks. Uh, it was very pleasant upbringing up there. You're a New Yorker. Okay. I mean, you know. I'm a New we'll, Yorker. We'll, we'll count you close enough. You're right. Yeah, you don't really, yeah, you don't have a strong sound of it, but. Uh... No. I mean, <laughs> New York City was like a train ride away. So it was a great place to visit, but I was glad I didn't live there. Let's put it that way. Yeah, a place to visit and not where you'd want to live, I think, is how most of the country feels about us. I grew up in the 70s and 80s when it was particularly rough, although my memory of it is not as bad as it could have been. I mean, I had I didn't have a rough childhood or anything, but yeah, it was uh, scary at that time in some ways. But uh, so how, when did you get interested in science? Was it from the beginning or did you have it in the house in some way? Or My mom was a nurse and my dad worked in the, in the meat, meat market at the AMP. So... I was the oldest child. I have four. I had four sisters that were all younger than I was. But I was always interested oh, in wow. science. And as a matter of fact, I wanted to be a marine biologist. That was got intrigued me. You know, I remember Flipper on TV, and so I got hooked on <laughs> marine biology. And then when I was about twelve years old, I was a paper boy. Back in the day, you know, you used to ride your bike around to deliver papers to different people's houses. And one of the places I stopped by to pick up my pay happened to be a science teacher in the high school and middle school, earth science teacher specifically. His name was Jim Witt. And I was intrigued. He had these white boxes on his front yard. And I, when I went up to pick up the pay, I said, you know, hey, you know, what are those things? You know, I kept seeing them. I didn't know what they were. He said, oh, those are Thompson screens. That's where we put meteorological instruments to measure the temperature, humidity, and pressure. And I said, oh, that's interesting. He said, yeah, I'm a science teacher over at the high school, and, you know, we have a weather club. If you're interested, you ought to look me up. You know, I was getting into middle school, and the middle school and high school were co-located. So he said, yeah, even in middle school, you come over to the weather club. And I said, okay. Lo and behold, I got into middle school. I went to see him. He said, yeah, here. You know, and the interesting thing about it was it was hands-on. Jim was a weather enthusiast. He had a master's degree from NYU. Uh, he knew some people at NYU, the professors. Uh, he knew some people at the Weather Service from when he was there. And he really set it up so it was hands-on. We had a, he got licenses for circuit A and circuit C. Um, no facsimile, just circuit A and circuit C. He taught us how to plot the maps how to read the circuit A and do the local, circuit C, do the upper air. He taught us how to forecast. Uh, he was a buff, and he was passing this stuff on to us. And in high school, there were a group of us that just gravitated to it. He was like a magnet. While I was there, I went through all high school with him, earth science, the whole nine yards. And, you know, we passed it on to each generation. And I think I, I mentioned to you that there was a number of us who have gone on to careers in meteorology, Greg Tripoli at 
University of Wisconsin was my classmates. Jordan Alpert, who really? EMC was one of my classmates. Jim Hack, who ran the Oak Ridge Lab. No kidding. Climate Models was my classmate. Um, uh, Mike Steinberg, who was a vice president at AccuWeather, was one of my classmates. You know, wow. it was just, we were all together and he inspired us to go on. And by the time I graduated high school, I'd been doing meteorology for five or six years and knew how to forecast and everything. And I went off, I wanted to be a meteorologist at that point. That's what I want to do. So I'm looking that for colleges. <laughs> wait, wait, before we go into colleges, can we just talk about this for a second? I mean, first of all, it's quite common when you talk to scientists, as I've been doing here for a while, that people have some teacher that inspired them but this is a particularly good story and you know the list of people that were in your class i mean when i talk to people i often find that they were classmates that they have a list like that from when they were a phd student but to, <laughs> to have that group in high schools you know really is a remarkable teacher you guys had and you know you said he had a master's from nyu that was the time when i think you know, they didn't have a meteorology department in NYU for a long time. They closed it in the 70s, and then it's kind of reopened now in the math department. But that's when Horowitz was there, I think, and maybe Uyama too, right? And I think like it was that. actually I mean, before was a... Vic. I think Joe Schaefer, I'm trying to remember back who he knew. And actually, Jim inspired a lot of people, not only students. He inspired other colleagues. And I'm trying to remember the guy in New York who does the weather Who's, who was a teacher at the time, saw what Jim was doing, went up to Jim and said, I need your notes. I want to teach the same way. He was teaching in Brooklyn uh, at the oh. same time. Um, and he inspired him. And I mean, Jim it was, he was an incredible guy. He was the baseball coach, you know, for the, for the high school baseball team. And in the spring, we didn't do a lot of weather stuff because he was off doing baseball. But I mean, he had us really primed. We even got a radar. He even found a radar that the Air Force Whoa. was getting ready to throw away and talked the Air Force into getting the radar to us and wow. getting the license to put it on the roof of the high school. He was an incredible guy. He's still around and, and he's still incredible. This is uh, Jim Witt, you said was his name? Yeah, W-I-T-T. Well, I'm sure he knows, you know, given the list you gave, I'm sure he knows whose careers he inspired. But anyway, it's good to do these shout outs. I also wanted to ask, I'm just interested in these technical details. So like Circuit A and Circuit C, that's some telecom thing that you were getting the maps from? Yeah, back in the day, all the weather information was on teletype. Even when I went to MIT, yeah. we still had teletypes. Uh, you know, Eddie still had the teletype on the 16th floor. Yeah, um, even in my day still, I think. Yeah. And, I bet you know, Jim, anymore, but back then. Yeah, I mean, you know, no, I've been there and I know they don't. But Fred Sanders used to, you know, if there was a big storm, you know, the bomb of the year, he'd always tell Eddie, take all that data, put it in that draw, and we'll look at it later, you know, that type of thing. But Circuit A was for local, you know, surface OBS strictly around the country. So we had to learn all the station identifiers and how to do the, the you know, read the uh, the messages and you know in the yeah. wmo format and, and and break them down then circuit c was the all upper air so there was a lot less stations but and he taught us how to draw isobars and fronts and stuff um you know it was really really a good primer and matter of fact when i went off to college and studied in the meteorology program i knew more than most of the seniors in the class and then i remember when i, I eventually got them got to MIT. 
all the math and physics majors who were there would come to me about the meteorology stuff while I was going to them about the math and physics stuff. It was kind of a, an interesting, uh, you know, collaboration that we set up during school. Yeah. Okay. So college, you were starting to do that before I cut you off. Well, so when I was getting close to graduating high school, I wanted to be a meteorologist. I didn't think atmospheric science. I was thinking 500 millibars surface, 850, you know, the chart levels. That was my idea of meteorology. And so I applied to a number of schools. I didn't have a lot of money in the family, so I'm looking for some place who'll give me a full boat. And I ended up at this small liberal arts college in New Hampshire called Belknap College. Had about uh-huh. 700 students. It was up in the Lake District in central New Hampshire. But they had a great meteorology program. They had three professors, all with at least masters. One had a doctorate. Two had gone to MIT uh-huh. under AFIT as the Air Force Institute Technology Program. And the other one had gotten his master's degrees, I believe, at UMass. Um, and so it was a great program. I mean, math was like, you know, rote math, calculus, linear algebra, the whole nine yards. But I really loved the meteorology stuff. And while I was there, I helped form a student AMS chapter. I got him because I had really started interacting with the AMS when I looked for colleges. I went to the AMS's resource book that listed all the colleges with programs. And so I knew about the AMS. I got a chapter started. We had our own weather competition, you know, where we try and forecast for different cities and compete with others, which I carried on, went on into MIT and did it as well. At MIT, we did that. But anyway, I got through all the programs, all the classes I could take. And one of the professors, uh, Dr. Derrickson, who had got his PhD at MIT, and then the president of the college had also, Bill Widger, had gotten his PhD at MIT. And the two of them encouraged me to apply to go to college, to grad school. And they all said, apply to MIT, apply to MIT. You know, we'll write letters for you. Anyway, I applied to a number of colleges. I got early acceptance at CSU. I was going to work with Elmer Ryder. But then my future wife, fiance at the time, I went to a Passover Seder at her house in Boston area. And Uh I got a call while I was there from MIT, from, uh, I think it was Jim called and said, you know, uh, we're, we're putting you, we're offering you a fellowship. Wait, who's Jim? Jim Austin was Polly Austin's husband. Jim was, I don't know, was Jim still there when you went there? No, I don't think so. He was one of the older faculty. He has actually worked in the dean's office for quite some time while I was there in the the late 70s. So Jim called and you know, so here I am, I got an offer from CSU and MIT calls. And so I go into the Passover Seder and my, my fiance says, well, Frank's got an offer from MIT, but he, you know, I, we were going to get married and move to Colorado. And so her grandfather says, no, you got to go to MIT. I don't want to need to leave Boston. <laughs> so, <laughs> my fate was sealed. I was going to MIT. It was my first choice, but, you know, you, you don't know where you're going to end up. Yeah. And so my major professor was Polly Austin, who ran the radar lab on the 18th floor. Okay. Probably my best mentor was Speed Geotis or Spiros Geotis, who was the radar engineer for the radar lab who was uh-huh. probably i don't know if you knew speed he probably passed away probably before no. you got there but he was kind of a renaissance man uh, he taught me a lot especially going into the field he always said when you're in the field do what the natives do don't try and 
act like an American, understand and live the culture. So he was kind of a mentor in some ways. Uh, and, you know, when I worked there, it was a blast. I, I followed Bob Howes. The first thing I did was Polly Austin was Bob's senior advisor, and she gave me his thesis and all his notes from his PhD. So he had already finished when you got there? Yeah, or? Bob had just finished in 72. I got there in 73. Oh, okay. And, and so, of course, you know, the first year Norm Phillips course, uh, 1961, was the standard text. Everything he wanted to know about meteorology without Coriolis. And then the next mm -hmm. course, of course, was uh, the Victor Starr course, which by mm -hmm. then Victor was pretty much not teaching anymore. And then you had numerical. Um, so I was lucky to have Norm for that course. By the time I got to the second year, Starr had stopped teaching, and Peter Stone had taken over that course. Uh huh. Yeah. So um, I got to I got to step back a little bit. So the first year grad student, I'm at MIT. I'm taking you know math courses and I'm taking uh, meteorology courses. And I don't know if you know Dean Duffy, but he was the TA for Norm Phillips at the time. And I remember sitting in Norm's uh, course and he would he would give you the syllabus, all the homework problems, everything but the midterm and the final in a notebook yeah. and said, okay, this is the course and this is, we're going to go through it. These are the lectures, the orders. And I noticed about, and Dean was our TA. So I said to Dean, you know, Norm just keeps going. He doesn't stop. He finishes one set of lectures one week and he starts the next one, you know, and he kept going yeah. and going. And I said, yeah. it's hard to keep up. He said, well, you guys aren't asking questions. If you don't ask him a question, you're just going to keep on going. <laughs> he said, he yeah. handed you the syllabus. you got to ask questions. Otherwise, you keep on going. <laughs> so we got a little wise. I started spreading the room. Hey, we got to ask questions. Um, you know, and it was interesting. But Norm was a phenomenal teacher. He was, his lectures were excellent. So in that first year, I was riding the elevator up to the 18th floor one day, and I noticed a, a blurb in the elevator. UCAR, the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research, was looking for grad students to apply to go to Africa for the GARP Atlantic Tropical Experiment. Uh, the Global Atmospheric yeah. Research Program Atlantic Tropical Experiment, a uh, double acronym. And yeah. they were looking for grad students. Full, you know, everything would be paid for. You would get a stipend. and You would actually get paid. I said, holy crap, I'm going to apply for this. And I applied. Yeah. And they took, they picked 30 of us. I was number 29, I think. The idea was the students would go on the ship and get experience in the field. Kind of like mm -hmm. you've done with your students. You know, I've listened to your podcast. So I know you've done that with your students. Yeah. Get them out in the field. As much as I can, yeah. I went to Africa for three months. My job, I never got on the ship. I was an alternate. So there were two of us who sat in the car for three months uh -huh. doing odd jobs, everything from hanging the flags of every country that was participating on the wall the first week I was there to working with Ed Zipser on flight planning. And my advisor, Polly Austin, was there because we put a radar on one of the ships. And she was advising them on how to fly to get the targets they wanted. And so when she left after the first month, she said to Ed, talk to Frank, he'll help you. And I'll never forget... <laughs> first time Ed said okay marks where do i fly and i said well i think you can fly here here and here you know 
And he goes out there and he comes back and he says, Marks, there was nothing there but stratiform rain. We never saw any convection. So my next job became, okay, analyze all the radar data we're getting from the Quadra, which was a Canadian Coast Guard cutter, which had a big radar on top. And they were sending it back uh-huh. as facsimiles. So I had these facsimile maps every hour from the Quadra. And so I, I had to put make a grid and then count up the echoes and classify the echoes as convective or stratiform. And we found a semi-diurnal tide variability in there that when we were flying, it was a diurnal minimum. And that's why there's all this stratiform. So it it was an interesting experience. I mean, I got to meet people like the Simpsons and Dick Reed and Ed Zipser. Of course, Bob Burpee was there running the forecasting, who eventually became my boss. It was phenomenal. So I worked for Al Betts and Dave Rodenhouse in their analysis group. We were analyzing balloon launches because we were using these Omega. The U.S. was using Omega radio signals to track the balloons with height. And all the other countries were using radars to track them, transponders. Right. And I remember there used to be arguments about, oh, those Raywin Sons that, you know, the Raywin Sons that they're using with the Omega stink. You know, we should stop using the radars to map the rain and use the radars to track the balloons. And, you know, there was all this going on. It was interesting as a student sitting in the background listening to all this. Omega. I don't know what Omega is. I know that they used to track radio sounds with radar. I I, I even saw that in my first field campaign a long time ago. But but I don't know what Omega is. So preceding GPS for for tracking the balloons, they had they used a low frequency well, close to the land, they had something called Loran that they could use to triangulate on the balloons. But for global, there were a number of these Omega stations for global navigation. This is prior to GPS that would allow them to navigate. And also we used that same system. NCAR designed the SONs using the Omega. Uh, and eventually that same group went to GPS about 10 years later. What is it? Is it? Is it? Is the? It's a long wave, long wave radio signal, very low power. It had global coverage. There were like I think ten or twelve stations around the globe that would transmit so that they could triangulate. The only problem Uh was that the resolution was relatively coarse because there was only so many stations and the navigation was only good to so such a precision. I mean, it sounds like it's actually GPS. I mean, this is a, such a detour, but I these things are fascinating to me. It's GPS-like in the sense that there's a network, a standing network that it's relying on, as opposed to the radar, where you actually are looking at the thing with the radar and you know doing an active. Correct. Correct. These. This was the first attempt to do geo navigation with land-based transmissions of radio waves. These Omega stations were sending out radio signals. This is pre the idea of GPS. So. Uh, and NCAR thought, you know, they had tested it over land and it worked. They had a Loran version, too, for over land. So it's fascinating. I saw, you know, my job was plot these things up and look at them and analyze the data and provide analysis for input to the big meetings about what's the next phase. And it, it was interesting. It really taught me a lot about fieldwork, international in particular, because every briefing had to be in French. English and Russian. There was a big contingent of Russians. Uh, the French were there, obviously, the English, because Dakar was a form of French colony. So they were very big there. Yeah, yeah. 
And we should probably say, since we have listeners who are young and as well as who are not in the field, that Gate, which my understanding is by far the biggest field campaign ever, based, I mean, before or since, many countries, many ships, many airplanes. And if you look at the history of tropical meteorology and even the people who are still working today, basically anybody who was old enough to have been around was there it seems like to me i mean i you know if they're the generation where they could go they were there and so it was really kind of a remarkable thing both in terms of the science but also the international collaboration the interagency collaboration just the scope Correct. it was really an astonishing thing and i don't know maybe people are still writing papers from the data i don't know. I'm just going to say at the next AMS meeting, we're having a 50th anniversary session. Oh, really? At the AMS. Yes. So you're welcome to join us and reminisce. I'm going to be at AMS for at least part of the week. Yeah. The first tropical meeting I ever went to was a gate anniversary session was that in, the Dallas. in Dallas. Yeah. Yep. yep. Although looking back on it, it's kind of funny because reading what it was supposed to do, it was supposed to solve the convective parameterization problem, which, of course, if you judge True. it by that way, it was a failure. But then again, so has everything else been a failure. So I guess you can't be too critical. Yeah. So was that the yeah, beginning the, of your... That was the beginning of my interest, obviously, in fieldwork. Um, it was a fascinating eye-opener for me uh, that you could do this. I guess maybe I was serendipitously lucky to be there for such a you know huge experiment. We had 23 ships, seven airplanes. The ships were set up in an array about the size of the grid boxes in the global model at the time, and they had telescoping nests, and they had all these boundary layer and balloons you know, flying off of them. Uh, it was yeah. just a fascinating thing to be a part of and to meet anybody who was involved with tropical meteorology was there uh, from Jim Sadler to Dick Reed to, you know, Dick Uyama. I mean, they were all there. It was crazy. I remember flying from Boston to Dakar. I got on the plane and I'm sitting there and I'm listening to the person behind me talking to the other person who says, where are you going? Oh, I'm off to Africa. And I'm thinking, who's this? And so we got off the plane in New York because we had to fly out of JFK to Dakar. And I mm-hmm. went up to the gentleman and I said, hi, I'm Frank Marks. I'm a student, a UCAR student going off the gate. And, uh, you know, I wanted to introduce myself. He said, oh, I'm Dick Reed. <laughs> That's my first introduction to Dick Reed. Uh, you know, it, it was enjoyable and certainly eye-opening the beginning of my career. I'd never been in the tropics until then either. So that's the introduction to tropical meteorology. For me. Well, that was what I was going to ask. Is that the point at which your interest became tropical or had you? You know, it's interesting. That? My master's thesis, which I came back to MIT after that summer away and I had to finish up my master's thesis, was actually on the New England coastal front. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I got working with Fred Sanders and Lance Buzzer. Because Lance was Mr. Coastal Front at the time. And I remember, you know, while I was putting my thesis, my whole master's thesis was on the snow enhancement along the coastal front and uh, the range snow line between Providence, Rhode Island and Boston. Uh, And so I used the radars that MIT had and I used, you know, the station ops. Uh, So it was all about coastal front. And I remember going out to Albany and visiting Lance and getting tutored by him on the coastal front idea. Also at that time, Dick was already, Dick Lindzen was already at MIT when you were there, right? Yes. Okay. So Dick was at Harvard at the time uh, when I was doing my second year. So Dick would have, I think it was Thursday evenings, he would invite some meteorologist colleague come in to town and they would give a talk in his conference room with all Dick's students and 
us MIT folks would go over too. And I don't know if you knew John Young, but John Young was visiting MIT that year. And so he ended up teaching Ed Lorenzo's course. So I had John Young for Ed's course because Ed was on sabbatical. He got us to go over to Dick's Thursday evening shindigs. And I remember, I think you, you know, Dick is always in this uh, conflict mode. He always has to take the other side and argue it just to be an yes. argument. And yes. so he would invite these people in <laughs> and he'd have a tete-a-tete -a -tete with us students sitting there and kind of learning this kind of Socratic method of, you know, grilling each other. Then we'd all go out for dinner, and it was great. I, it, so I had that experience as well. Dick was certainly a fascinating character. This one I got to meet a whole bunch of his former students, uh, Lloyd Shapiro, Ed Schneider. Yeah. It, it was an interesting group that we got to know that second year I was in grad school. And so then, of course, comes Qualls. I had taken a little bit of Chinese course, meaning I took Chinese course, but he was only there half the time. Right. You know, so I, I was nervous about the quals. I think every student is, you know, and at the time, I don't know how they did the quals when you were there, but we would have kind of like a thesis proposal that we had to do. And of course, I picked the gate data from my thesis proposal and particularly the African easterly ways and how they developed and what drove them. Yeah. Yeah. And then they'd have a four-day problem, which you would have, four, you know, they'd give you a question off somewhere. In my case, it was Peter Stone gave me this incredible question. And I had four days to do the answer. And then you turn that in, and then you have an oral. Wouldn't you know, the night before I had the oral, my wife and I got stuck up while we were coming back from dinner. <laughs> it was a little bit scary, but I was just angry because I had to do the oral exam, and I was... You mean you were like mugged at gunpoint or something like this? No, it was a guy came, followed us up the elevator to our apartment and he asked us a question, then stuck his finger in his pocket. I think it was his finger into my wife's side. Oh. You know, one of those things. And then he got into our kitchen and took a knife and brandished it about. And I said, take anything you want. I got an exam tomorrow. I don't care. Take anything you want. Yeah. He was frustrated after about 10 minutes. He said, you're a student. I'm not going to waste my time here. He did take the knife. <laughs> I just want to say, I want to hear the rest of the story, but just, I don't know if Mark Kane overlapped with you, but he had a story where his car got stolen, I think, the day before his qual or something like that. So this kind of stuff Mark seems was, to <laughs> Yeah, Mark overlapped with me. Yeah, I, I knew Mark. <laughs> uh, you know, Mark was ahead of me. So, um, yeah, he was just about to graduate, I think, when I was finishing my second year. So maybe he told you the car theft story. Yeah, so I, I, go, <laughs> anyway. to the, I go to the oral exam, and Peter Stone, Jim Austin... Uh, Fred Sanders, and I can't remember the fourth. I think it was Henry Houghton were my committee. And of course, Peter, you know, I had done the four-day problem for him. And so I walk in, and the first thing happens, Jim Austin says to me, so Frank, I hear you got held up last night. And that broke the ice. And from then on, I was cruising. <laughs> it, was, it was easy. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, I was frightened to death by it. I, I, I think most grad students are, you know, you go in to be grilled and yeah, all of a course. sudden it, was, it wasn't that hard. Uh, it's but the most I stressful was so, thing. I was so afraid I wasn't going to get in. I had actually applied to NOAA for a job in Washington to work on the gate data. Um, oh. And I got, I got the job. Uh, so when I, they offered me a job, I said, I have only one condition. I want to go back to MIT after a year with the data I work on. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, I worked for Gene Rasmussen and Mike Hudlow in the Center for Environmental Data, something, a data analysis, I think. 
they were processing all the gate data. Uh, and so I took a job for a year, met a lot of interesting folks there who were trying to get their PhDs while working full time and realized that it was probably smart. I decided to go back to MIT after a year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then my youngest, my oldest daughter decides to show up about that time. Uh, and so that was 75, 76. And then we went back to Boston, lived in Hull, under the penny candy store in Hull. And I commuted into yeah. Cambridge every day, either on the T or carpool with somebody at Lincoln Lab. Managed to keep going, even with a little baby, uh, for another yeah. three years, working on my thesis, which was on the possibility of inertial instability along these jet streaks that came off Africa. Had a lot of data. I worked, I, Polly retired as my advisor and I got moved to Fred and Fred cracked the whip pretty good. But along the way, I ended up in Borneo for a month, six weeks doing winter monics, recording radar data on the north coast of Borneo. So that was my second right. field experiment. Um, and in that experience, I got to interact with the NOAA P3 airborne radars. Uh, they were right. flying, Bob, Bob Howes and Peter Webster were in charge of that. And I had known Bob from Gate and become a very close colleague of his. And Peter, I knew too. And so when they would fly near Borneo in these rain showers, we would be looking at the ground radar. Um, mm. And... You know, that's where I met Jerry Meal. Jerry Meal was also a student there. Uh, I think mm -hmm. you know Jerry well. He did the balloons and I did the radar. And we spent six weeks in Borneo. And that was fascinating because I got to interact with the airborne radar. So when I went back to MIT, I was wrapping up my thesis. Bob Burpee came to visit as a visiting faculty. He had asked me if I'd be interested in working in Miami. And I said, sure. Um, and so when he arrived... He set up a chance for me to go down to Miami and give a seminar. Uh, I went down to what was then National Hurricane Research Laboratory. Uh, this is 1979, late 79. I gave a seminar, and then Stan Rosenthal, who was the director at the time, invited me into his office and said, Frank, I'd like to offer you a job. You know, how much you want to get paid? And I said, you're going to pay me to do this? He said, well, I think your wife might want you, want you to get paid to do it. I mean, here was a job. You know, you get to fly in airplanes, you get to collect data, you get to write papers, you get to analyze the data. I mean, it was just like, holy crow, this is like a field program heaven. Yeah. I went back to MIT and Burpee really pushed the buttons and said, get this thing done. Otherwise, you can't get down to Miami. So I worked my tail off, uh, got my thesis done. Too late for graduation in June 1980. Um, Fred Sanders had asked me to uh, do a computation. And you know how you get to the point in your PhD where you say, yeah, okay, that's a good idea, but I'm not going to do it right now. I'll do it for yes. when I write up the paper. <laughs> One of those things. Yeah. So I remember going into my qualifying exam, my PhD exam, and you know we went through and I go out and I'm sitting in the hall waiting to hear Fred comes in and says, Frank, you passed, but I'm not signing your thesis until you do that computation. <laughs> <laughs> this is the defense, obviously. Right, the defense, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the yeah. defense. And so I said, okay, but I'm moving my family to Miami this week. I'll come back and finish <laughs> it. And in those days, yeah. there was no 
there was no PCs. You got to remember, this is 1981. No PCs. Yeah. All the computations were done on a big IBM 360-95 over in Building 37. And you have to be there. No internet either. You have to be there, right? Well, that's another sidebar I should tell you about. Uh, one of the interesting parts about my PhD thesis was I did it all digitally. Being in the radar lab, a lot of the students from Triple E would be in the lab working. And uh -huh. one of them was really astute. Um, he was writing a compiler for his PhD, for his master's thesis. He suggested I do everything digitally. So they gave me kind of like a Rube Goldberg CRT with, you know, uh, an acoustic coupler and a keyboard, which I set up uh -huh. in our bedroom in the hall. And... Every night I'd put my daughter to bed and then I'd, you know, tell my wife I'm taking over the phone and I'd hook up to the computer over at the AI lab and I'd type in my oh. thesis. Uh, so I had my thesis, PhD thesis on a nitrack tape. I still do. I actually have it. <laughs> um, wow. And I got, and they get, allowed me to print it on one of the first Xerox laser printers that the AI lab had. And so I, I actually printed up my thesis on an AI lab laser printer where I could lay out all the equations and everything using trough, which was pre-LaTeX, pre-Tech. Pre-LaTeX, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So did that mean when you went to Miami that you could still do it that way over the phone? This calculation no. that Sanders made you do? No, I had to go back. Oh, okay. and I went back for two weeks. And <laughs> okay. of course, my wife was from Boston. And, you know, my in-laws, you know, would have loved to have them and my and their granddaughter visit. So uh, I went back two weeks. My wife came back and stayed with her parents. I crashed at one of my classmates' places in Somerville and rode the bike in with them every day. And two weeks, I did that computation. I got it done. I handed it in to Fred. Fred said, okay, I'll sign it. And so I, I, my graduation date is actually January 81, even though I was done uh, at the end of July uh, 1980. And then came the best part. I want to hear the best part. I go back to Miami. It's early August. Hurricane Allen formed. I get to go on my mm. first hurricane mission August 5th, 1980. I'm on a P3, which was the same P3 I was on for my last flight this year in Tammy, NOAA 4-3, mm -hmm. uh, 50 years, uh, yeah, 44 years later. And it's just interesting that I got to be on my first hurricane flight. I think my wife, my wife said he was walking on air when he got off the plane. <laughs> I mean, Wait, literally same plane? Yeah, the NOAA P3s have been around since 75, 76. So they're, they've been flying 40, 47, 48 years. I've been flying 44 years. So I only missed it for three or four years, the P3. I guess I knew that they were old planes, but I didn't realize that they were literally, that they didn't build new ones of the same model, that they're actually, the planes are that old. That's uh, kind of remarkable. But before we get in like deep to this next phase of your career, I want to just reflect on the stuff for just a minute because I, I mean, because I, I went to MIT, as you've referred to, and I've talked to a lot of people who were there in your day and before and after. And there's a few things that struck me that are that are different about your story from others that I've talked to. First of all, Charney and Lorenz are at most minor players in your story. It was a different, different group of people you were working with. 
but also the fact that all throughout your time, you know, so many people, they go to MIT and they have this experience and they learn so much and they make these connections. And that part of your story has that in it, but it also has like you had kind of an independent career from MIT in a way from before to after because you know you knew all this stuff already in high school you learned how to do the radar already in high school then you go to college and you're like leading the thing there and then you go to MIT and like you get on gate not because your professor sent you but because you applied you know seeing the thing on the wall and then those connections got you to another field campaign and then that got you into you know what I mean it's like you have you're getting your education at MIT but you had this whole parallel career already from the yeah. beginning kind of and, and you still have it i mean you still <laughs> you still stay there it, it's interesting you know i always when i talk with people about the, my career i just say i was in the right place at the right time i was lucky i'm a firm believer in serendipity that you know you make your luck you know you take chances i always say, tell students and uh, postdocs and anything don't be afraid to take a chance you never know what it's going to happen. You know, it's an opportunity to push yourself, to stretch yourself, to learn something new. Um, sure, there was a lot of agita going on in between all those different wonderful things that happened. You know, having a daughter and trying to have a family life and stuff like that while you're doing your PhD. I didn't even mention the seven-day blizzard wiping out our basement apartment, and we have to live with my in-laws at Newton for six months while oh, we try and clean that up. But, uh, you know, life is full of twists and turns, and you just got to kind of ride the ride that bull as it goes. Um, yeah, I, in hindsight, Adam, I think, yeah, it looks like there was two paths. What I'm trying to say is while I was doing it, it just seemed like one continuous yeah, yeah. race from one thing to the next. I'm just saying you had a kind of independent set of connections and yes, experiences that wasn't that didn't all grow out of MIT directly. It was like you anyway. That's the, the what's interesting about it, and also just a little institutional history so we understand because the lab that you went to in 1980, if I understand right, it had a different name, but it, it is the same thing that became the Hurricane Research division that you ended up as the director of right correct i just want to ask when it started it wasn't very old right when you got there well no so the national hurricane research laboratory was one of the latest incarnations of something that started in the u.s weather bureau in the 50s in 1956 oh, okay. after cleo and edna and a number of storms agnes no agnes was later hit new england Arrow. congress wanted something done about hurricanes. So they formed something called the National Hurricane Research Program in 1956. Bob Simpson had been shopping this idea for years, and Reicheldurfer had it in his back pocket when this all happened. Uh, and so they set up in Miami using borrowed aircraft that they got. Mm. And Bob's idea was to go out and fly in the storms and collect observation to better learn to characterize these things. And so it was supposed to be a three-year project. After three years, they had only flown twice, uh, two, two years, and they had a bunch of data all on punch cards, which somebody had dropped, and they had to recollate those punch cards. So there's a lot of stories in there. But after three years, they decided it needed to continue, that they didn't have enough information yet. And I would say, argue now, we probably still don't have enough information on these rare events, but mm. that's a sidebar for another conversation. 
But so it started in 56. In 1960, it became the National Hurricane Research Laboratory, NHRL. And at the same time, the National Hurricane Center was formed. And then there was the research aviation facility, which ran the aircraft. They were all based in Miami. And so by the time I got there, they had gone through many tumultuous changeovers. They had gotten into you know, seeding hurricanes and this project storm theory had dominated a lot of what they did in the 70s, much for naught, unfortunately. So when I got there, within a year, they they changed National Hurricane Research Laboratory. They merged it with the lab called the Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory. So NHRL was co-located with the Hurricane Center in Coral Gables. And Aomel was out on Virginia Key, uh, where the Rasmus, the Rosenfield School for Marine Artists and Studies Sciences mm-hmm. uh, that belonged to the University of Miami was based. Yeah. And so we became part of that laboratory, uh, a division. And so there were a lot of changes that went on as that happened. We moved, actually moved physically out to the facility in 83 and became, you know, just one division and all the other mm. divi- the three or four divisions they had. Yeah, originally AOML was laboratories and then became laboratory as they merged all the pieces together. Right. And so NHC is the forecasters and you guys are the research that kind of goes with the forecasting. Right. And so you were a researcher, I guess, at the beginning. I mean, yeah, I was brought in to work with the airborne radars. As I mentioned, during the monsoon experiment, I had been exposed to that. I had done a paper with Bob Howes on comparing the radars together. And so they were looking for somebody with radar experience, radar meteorological experience, to work with the aircraft radars. And so when I got there, I brought a lot of the stuff I had done at MIT, got them calibrated, made sure, you know, originally they put those radars on when the planes were built. That was, I thought, brilliant, innovative that they had done that. And these were, yeah. they turned out to be amazing platforms for the, for just that purpose. And so the first work I did was Hurricane Allen. I did a study of what the radar structure looked like because we really didn't know. You know, some people said it was right. concave. Some people said it looked like a stadium. You know, sometimes, you know, it had a shelf overhead over the eye. There were all these stories about it. And even my office mate, Dave Jorgensen, had done work where, you know, in those days we kind of flew... We had three planes and we'd fly three of them in a stack into the storm at three different altitudes to get our measurements. We were basically, the way I describe it is like trying to find the seeds in an apple by poking a pin into it and hoping you hit an apple seed. Uh, Whereas with the radar, you're getting a three-dimensional kind of CAT scan of the structure. And so it was just perfect marriage for me. Otherwise, without putting the radar on the plane, you can't almost ever have a chance to see from inside the eye, for example. I mean, you never get, you know, it will almost never happen over land and the radar probably get destroyed if it did, right? So the, so this was the, right. even though radar is a remote instrument, you still need to get close enough. Well, it was interesting you say that because, yeah, I mean, you have, with a land-based radar, you have to wait for the storm to come to you. With the airborne radars, you yeah. go to the storm. So it's right. kind of, uh, targeted observations is the way I would describe it versus, you know, waiting for something to happen. And actually, in those days, this is pre-WSR-88D or Nexarad, as they called it. Uh, so we had what they called the WSR-57s, which were the Weather Service radar mm. that was put up in the 50s. 
uh, and they were at the stations, and none of them were digitized. So we ended up working with the group at NSSL, Dale Sermons and Dick Doviak and, and a couple others there, to work on digitizing the radars. And we actually would take a digitizing, we would get like a PDP-11 in a box with a tape drive and a digitizer, and we'd go to the ground station and we'd try and hook up to the radar and record the data so that we'd have it for analysis when a storm made landfall. So they had done that for Hurricane David, and they had recorded radar data. We had partnered with the National Weather Service Training Center to record the data. And I had helped analyze that in my first year there. And we were making movies. We would, in those days, we didn't have color monitors and stuff. We had teletype output. And so I, at MIT, I developed a way to color, you know, to make the blocking as look like you could draw contours on it. So you could draw contours by using different characters to, to get the gradations like an add sign or plus sign and stuff like that. So we would make these printouts. And I think, you know, Chris Lancy, he was one of our first high school students yeah. that, that worked for us. Oh, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> and so we had Chris shooting these, shooting a movie uh, of these prints that we made and made a movie that Vikuyama thought was the greatest thing since sliced bread because it showed him what a hurricane really looked like. And he was like, oh, this is great. You know, we, and Vic was always so interesting to talk to because he'd want to bore in and get the details. He always liked the nitty gritty details of everything. And, and what were the science questions? I mean, in these early days of your time, like what were the science questions that were most motivating at the time, well, rainfall obviously was an interest. You know, what? how much rain does a hurricane have, produce? You know, we didn't have quantitative estimates. I mean, yeah, gauges got hit, but they're right. spotty. And then yeah. what do the rain bands look like? Uh, Hugh Willoughby and I did a paper on the principal rain band and talked about secondary eye walls, you know, that another eye wall would form outside. That was really what killed Storm Fury. It was when we found that uh, and we published that, Storm Fury became a moot point because the hurricanes are doing it already. They were forming outer eye walls, contracting them in, choking off the inner eye wall. You know, and we were testing new instrumentation all the time. My second year there, we started working with Doppler. We Dopplerized the tail radar on the P3 so that we could get Doppler velocity. Mm -hmm. And so Dave Jorgensen and I were working together at the time. And any chance we could, we'd fly the plane with this new recorder that Dale Sermons built from NSSL that we put on the plane. And we started trying to get velocity data. We had problems. I remember flying once in Boston trying to do a coastal front mission. And eventually we got data out in Seattle in one of those uh, storms that Peter Hobbs was interested in. And then the first hurricane really was Tropical Storm Debbie in 1982 that Bob Howes and I worked on. And that started my real close collaboration with Bob on hurricane stuff. And so we did Debbie. And then in 83, we had Alicia. And that was the first time we'd done a hurricane with Doppler radar and showed the three-dimensional structure. You know, the asymmetries, all of a sudden, what? Asymmetries? You know, prior to that, we couldn't do asymmetries. Right. Everything was axisymmetric averages. And, you know, so we brought out, you know, vortex tilt, and we could see the changes in the structure. And then we did Norbert in 84. That started a ramp up of the importance of Doppler radar and looking at structure storms, which... I'm very proud of today that that's what we go out to do is to collect that data for the models because the models are using it now. Yeah. I mean, of course, in your time, there was, by this time, there was satellite too. 
but it doesn't see the things the radar sees, right? It doesn't see the, it only sees True. the top of everything. It doesn't really get in there. Yeah. It sees the central dense overcast, that big anvil that uh, covers the inner core. It does see into yeah. the eye. So it's interesting you bring that up because in gate was the first geostationary satellite launch SMS one for gate. Mm. And so mm. it was interesting to watch that satellite evolution as well. We always had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder at, at uh, NHRL or HRD because we flew in the storm and we could actually see what was yeah. going on under the cloud. Uh, you know, we worked very yeah. closely with the folks at Sierra and Sims who were doing all the satellite work. And they became close collaborators on using our data to help improve the satellite estimates of things. And we still do. Uh, it's It's been a great collaboration there. But when I got to NHRL, I arrived the same time that Steve Lord arrived. He was one of Arakawa's students. And of course, I knew Wayne from, you know, Gate. He was in Gate. And so it was interesting. And then I had Dave Randall. Wayne Schubert, you mean? Yeah, Wayne Schubert. And then Dave Randall yeah. was at MIT for a while. And the last year I was there, I took his course on convective instabilities and, you know, boundary layer and convection, uh -huh. which was kind of like yeah. Norm's course, but much more in-depth, um, you know, detail. Yeah. Steve came, and Steve and Hugh Willoughby and Lloyd Shapiro were all colleagues. We had an interesting thing. We had a carpool. Carpool was Steve Lord and myself, Hugh Willoughby, Pete Black, and we would meet and drive into Coral Gables from our homes out west. And every day, you know, we'd have a science discussion going back and in. I mean, I learned so much in the, just those carpool talks going back and forth into town. <laughs> yeah. You know, with, you know, you got numerical modelers, theoreticians, uh, observationalists all in one car. It was interesting. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I miss those days. It's interesting because when I talk to, you know, if I think about the people who do so much of the hurricane work that's, you know, close to operations and that's, uh, that has a forecast orientation or that has a you know, strong observational component, there's so much, so many of them were, were uh, in the orbit of Bill Gray. And your connections are not that. It's MIT and Arakawa, UCLA, and it's a different um, group of people. So it's interesting. No, I was going to say Vic Oyama, you know, who was a famous NYU professor uh, who yeah. went out to NCAR and then came to work with us for years. I mean, Vic was, he was phenomenal. Every paper he wrote was a star. I mean, I remember reading a 64 paper as an MIT grad student and then to get yeah. to work with the guy and, you know, not, that 1969 paper he wrote. Oh, my God. And then he wrote one while I was at, at, in Miami, the one, the 72 paper where he talked about the scales of everything. It was just he was so interesting to talk to. And he was actually interested in observations, which I found fascinating. Uh, you know, yeah. he wanted to know every little detail. I'd go if I, you know, we always gave a seminar every year. And after my seminar, Vic would be at my door. He said, I need to know more about this. I mean, Vic was just a fascinating guy. And of course, Stan Rosendahl, you know, it's just great people. I've been fortunate. I stand on the shoulders of giants. Let me tell you, it's been. Uh, well, everybody does. I mean, it's, you know, hearing your your stories of your first years and, and the radar and the various other things it's i'm impressed by how much of it you know how much depends on technology i mean how much you're figuring out how to do things how to make the observations from the plane with these different instruments and you know the, you're you're being impressed 
that Uyama was interested in observations because, I mean, unfortunately, he I, he's not somebody I ever got to meet, but he's especially famous among the theorists. I mean, he did sort of dramatic, elegant theoretical simplifications and idealized models that, you know, this the spirit of which kind of lives on in today's idealized models. And it's just a, a thing I tell to students now because the field's got so modeling oriented especially in my corner of it that it is an observational field ultimately it's an observational driven field and you're obviously your career is part of that i mean you must have i mean although you're doing research but the fact that you're flying you were from the beginning flying into the storms obviously the same data are used for forecasting and you must have been acutely aware of what they were doing and connected to it yeah yeah i i would say the first 20 years of my career, it was more almost adversarial because, you know, when you're out there flying and then you see <laughs> really? the forecast, well, you know, it's not adversarial in the sense that I, I think you might mean, but it was like, we thought we knew what was happening because we were uh -huh. there and then we'd come back and see uh -huh. the forecast. And of course they would, their job is to communicate, not necessarily to tell you exactly what's there. We're, you know, as scientists, we're intimately interested in the details and they want to get the idea yeah. across. And so the first Hurricane Center director I interacted with was Neil Frank. I love Neil. Neil was great. But Neil saw what we were doing and deduced that during his career, none of what we were doing on the research side was ever going to help him. So Neil <laughs> took up the idea that, okay, let's educate people on Saffron Simpson. Let's educate them on what the impacts might be based on our forecast. And so he took the idea, he, he paid attention to what the research do, but he really focused on interacting with FEMA, interacting with the stakeholders. Um, and he pushed that idea. The second NHC director I interacted with was Bob Sheets, who had been at NHRL. And the year I arrived, he was still at NHRL and he left to go to NHC uh, the second year I was there. And Bob knew what we did. He had been one of us. Bob kept trying to get us as part of NHC to do what he wanted, you know, type of thing. It was uh, not necessarily adversarial, but it was sometimes confrontational. But Bob would use anything we would give him, you know, but he had his own ideas about how it should work. Um, you know, and then uh, after that, you know, Max Mayfield, once Max took over, Max was a friend, an old friend, and he really knew what we were doing. And he would say to me, Frank, we need your help. We need you to help us do better. So there was a change from, you know, you guys are out there doing stuff that I don't know what I'm going to use to, yeah, give me whatever you got to, okay, we need your help. So there was a transition through the directors um, as I've been there uh, to now where one of the deputy director said to me the other day, if, if we were a corporate entity and HRD was out there, we would do a, a hostile takeover to have you guys working with us. Uh, you know, so it's a, the change over the decades uh, from, yeah, okay, we got your data, that's good enough type thing to now, we need you to help us. Uh, that transition has been fascinating to watch. I'm just struggling with how a hurricane center director could think that your stuff wasn't useful because I mean, I can understand, okay, if the early days, they don't know how to interpret radar data or something that takes a lot of, you know, that that's a special thing, but between, of course, and, and I, maybe people don't, there's NOAA flies planes, then the air force also flies into storms. That's also right. had been going on, I think already before you probably, yeah. that is as, yeah, as it's old. It's been going but, on but back I mean, into the 
Yeah, but even if yeah. even if you don't know how to under, interpret radar data, I mean, you guys are flying through and measuring the winds, and and you know, at some point you started dropping drops on. I mean, how could they not use that? What else, you know, other than satellite data, what else they have out in the ocean? How could it? How could they say it's not useful? I'm just struggling with that. Well, first of all, um, getting data back to the Hurricane Center in real time was a challenge when I first started. Oh, okay. We would, uh, right. uh, everything was on magnetic tape. And so and it, when we get, we'd collect data, we'd come off the plane with an armload of tapes and we'd take it back to the lab and maybe two years later we'd get something. Um, you know, I see. Uh, we, okay. All right. <laughs> uh, you know, so it was all kind of at that point. Uh, in 2000, I worked with uh, Kevin Kelleher at it and SSL at the time. And we came up with the idea to use satellite communication to test it on the P3 to get the data back fast. Up until 2000, the only way we got data back was we were using an old geostationary satellite communication link at 100 baud mm. to send data from mm. the airplane to the ground at 100 baud. Mm. So everything had right. to be very streamlined and, you know, basically a string of numbers <laughs> coming out of the plane. And right. so in 2000, Kevin and I had the idea of testing out satellite communication and that worked great it was costly at the time but we got a satellite receiver on the p3 and we started being able to have bigger bandwidth to transmit data now we have pretty good satellite communication from p3 and everything's instantaneous within minutes after we collect it maybe 10 minutes they have it on the ground including the doppler analysis which we do automated so the pipeline now is phenomenal that's why they're saying give us more give us more and the other part of course is getting it into a format that they can actually use it. In those days, yeah. they were just struggling to do track and track forecasts when I started in 1980. Right. Intensity was kind of like, oh, geez. And nothing was more than two or three days. Now we do right. five days and we're pushing seven. And, you know, right. it. there's a lot of change going on. And I think Neil, I'm not picking on Neil here because I think Neil was smart. He said, I need to get to the people who are going to get this information that I can give them and make them understand. Because both he and Bob Sheets used to walk around back in the day before PowerPoint with, you know, these slide decks of 50 slides of impact. Yeah. You know, they'd show you before and after pictures like from Camille or, you know, Frederick or some storm that made landfall. You know, they'd go out to people and say, this is what a storm can do. And so I think I'm not besmirching them, not taking what we gave them. They got everything they could get and they used it. Yeah. But yeah. where they were in their ability to do a forecast was not where they are now, for sure. Before we go on, you, you've mentioned Project Storm Fury a couple of times, which if anybody doesn't know, was the pretty large effort to modify hurricanes by cloud seeding and ended up being unsuccessful by everybody's judgment the project was whether you could modify the hurricane is unclear but but it didn't demonstrate well enough for the people to keep funding it or for it to happen and there were a lot of issues which i'm sure you could talk about and maybe we shouldn't because it sounds like it was mostly before your time but did it still catch a cast a shadow i mean when you were there did was did it have residual impacts did people talk about it a lot did you was something you spent time thinking about yeah well um i will say that over my career, especially since I was director, I would get probably 20 emails a month 
about during hurricane season about, hey, I got this idea on how to modify a hurricane. And you'd have to respond because oh, those yeah. people thought about it and you have to write them a response. Uh, and I remember helping prepare the standard response, of course, which we tweak based on whatever they suggested. I mean, I can tell you that during Hurricane Katrina, I actually got a call from a general who said, I got a nuclear bomb. Where do you want me to put it? Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, so people are well-intentioned and I respect that. And I would always try and respond, po- you know, in a positive way to any other suggestions to explain what we do know and what we don't know. And I also explained yeah. to them the whole idea of liability as a government entity. We are liable for anything we do, even inadvertently. And I always point out that inadvertently, we've already modified things considerably. Yeah. Um, by best estimate right now, that, you know, there are unintended consequences. So I always try and do that. Um, now, Storm Fury yeah. was an idea that started in the late 60s. Joanne Simpson was a big player in that. The idea was, of course, um, the folks up in Albany had come up with the idea of putting dry ice out and modifying clouds. And I think even Henry Houghton had done some work up, you know, getting rid of fog at airports and stuff like that with seeding the clouds. So there was some definite interest in cloud seeding to improve rainfall and then to modify hurricanes. And the whole concept was you would seed outside the eye to grow a new eye wall. And that would eventually cut off the supply of moisture to the inner eye wall making the storm radius expand, which would then lower the pressure gradients and and change the structure. That was the whole thesis. And it became a a monstrous project where we had Navy planes that were going to do seeding and NOAA planes monitoring. And, you know, it was just a big project. The problem we had was they did it maybe two or three times in the mid-60s. And it showed promise. But the problem we had was this whole idea of liability started to creep up. Governments yeah. were saying, oh, you're stealing our rain or you are you made yeah. the storm worse for us by making it better for you. So when I got there yeah. in 1980, there was still a lot of feeling that, oh, they must be out there modifying the storm. Because I remember listening to talk radio here in Miami and they said, oh, yeah, they're out there modifying the storm and they're doing this and they're doing that. And even this year, I got a call from, I'm trying to remember what news organization saying, Oh, there's a report that you've been playing with the jet stream to make, uh, I forget what it was, the F-storm. Uh, oh, no, it was Lee get stronger, intensify so rapidly. Yeah. And I can't imagine what they would have said about Otis we did. And I'd have to always respond back, yes, there's no, I know of no <laughs> anything going on like that. Uh, this is not unnatural behavior of storms. They do intensify rapidly. We're still trying to understand. You know, you have to be very responsive because you know perception is so hard to break down and it takes time but it's worth it to keep people from you know well now with blogs who knows you never know what's going on out there in in the multiverse i mean there's all kinds of conspiracy stuff out there but i mean i'm just trying to imagine this conversation because if i you know somebody calls you and says dear director are you guys you know what'd you guys do to make this storm you know wreck my house and you say well no really we're you know these things happen naturally and blah 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 of course that's what you would say isn't it even if you <laughs> right uh, yeah uh, i mean credibility is is what it is you know i i think i'd like to think that noah has credibility to the public 
as a trusted source of information. I like to think that. Now, is that true? I hope so. Um, I think so. Better than most. Better than most. There's not a lot of. There's not. There's not a lot of organizations that are universally trusted in the United States anymore. Well, I know you went through this with Sandy when you were looking at that, and I went through it with Irene. I was on one of these post-landfill survey teams, and we went out and we were looking at what did we do right and what did we do wrong. And I think some news organization, NPR, asked me to come on. So we're talking about Irene and the impacts, and I'm explaining what, you know why the flooding in Vermont was so bad and stuff like that. This guy calls in and he says, oh, it's all climate change. You know, oh, no, it was a climate denier type of thing. Uh, now, how can you say that? It can't be this. It can't be that. And I'm saying I didn't say anything about changing climate. I just said these were impacts from storms. You know, it's interesting how you get people's perceptions and, and how they react to it. Like I said, I always try and be very supportive of their their idea and interest and try and explain to them the best I can, because I'm, I'm totally not infallible, I'm fallible, to give them what I do know. And I'm a firm believer that telling them what you know and saying you don't know is information. It tells you something. Hey, this guy knows a lot, but he doesn't know this type of thing. Yeah. No, it's hugely important. I mean, I think even more so now with all the climate, having how, how to communicate uncertainty and all the different types of it. And, and, you know, what does that mean? Doesn't mean you shouldn't act on um, information that you have just because there's a lot of other information you don't have it's a it's a yeah it's a complicated thing but so now i mean i'm wondering if we can so we understand sort of how you got there and what you were doing in the early years at hrd w- what can we say about your sort of rise into leadership when did you become the director how it was a what already um, a long time ago, in right? 2003 oh, okay so yeah and i retired ago? in august 1st 2023 that is a long time as the director of anything. Yeah. So you kind of moved up as a researcher and then obviously must have shown an aptitude for leadership. I don't know. Do you want to talk about that? I mean, that's a different kind of a job, right? I mean, you're, yeah. you, know, you still go on the planes, I guess. You're still, you're still active in the research, but. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I look at it as mentorship at this point. Um, you know, now that I'm in phase, it's easier to look back. But um, so when I, when I was given the opportunity to step up, I had been leading the field program for about nine years. I mean, mm. one of the things I think the public should know is that we do this every year. We have access to the yep. aircraft every summer, and we go out and fly in hurricanes. I mean, they're rare events. People ask me for years, don't you know everything yet about hurricanes? And I say, well, hurricanes are like people. If you see 100 of them, do you know everything about people? Probably not. I mean, so <laughs> right. Right. Uh, I've flown in over 100 storms over my 44 years. Uh, I've been in and out of the eye over 500 times uh, of a hurricane. Of course, that's not even counting the weak systems that I've flown in, and which I enjoy because I learned things in the weaker storms. The hurricanes are kind of, okay, I know that. Let let me get to the good stuff, things we don't know about. But so we use the field program, or I always have, as a leadership tool because you have to not only – organize what we want to do you have to interact with the aircraft operations center who run the aircraft and all the equipment on it you have to interact with the national weather service who we provide the data to uh, and then all our university collaborators or or nasa or nsf or onr collaborators so you have to really yeah. be able to juggle a lot of interests make this learn how to make decisions and live with the consequence 
because there's not a right and wrong. It's decision consequence. Uh, you've been in the field. You know yeah. that. You you set out to do something. You try it. You roll with the punches, hope for the best, and then write up what you can out of it. And yeah. so we use it as a leadership tool. And after running it for nine years, I realized, well, geez, you know, this is uh, – I'm not getting a lot of research done. <laughs> and I got a lot of young kids that are doing a great job. And, and so I was asked by the director at the time of the lab, Christina Katsura, she said, Frank, you have to make a decision. Do you want to drive the bus or do you want to ride on the bus? If you don't want to drive the bus, somebody else is going to drive it. Are you willing to ride and do what they say? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I chose to drive. 20 years later, I think I probably didn't get in a ditch too much, but I got in a ditch a few times. But it's been a great ride. I, I have fantastic staff. I mean, one thing you learn about when you're a director, you know, when you're a researcher, it's about you. And then when you become a professor like you are, it's your group and it's your colleagues yeah. and your collaborators. It's the same thing yeah. when you're a director of a division of scientists. It's how can I facilitate them to be as productive as possible? How can I make opportunities for them like I had? You know, how can I make it safe to interact and do all the things that I have to do to make it happen? Working for the government, it's like a roller coaster. Every year we start with zero money on October 1st. <laughs> if we're lucky, if we're lucky, we get guaranteed at least the first few weeks of pay to pay the people. Um, and then you hope for a budget. Um, of the last few years, it's been a struggle, but that's the government way. And, uh, you know, it's above my pay grade. You move with it. It's, I always looked at it like a roller coaster. You know, you kind of start with nothing, you get up, oh, you know, and then all of a sudden in June, hey, we got all this money, spend it quick. Because on September 30th, you've got to be zero again. And so it's an interesting way to work. Luckily, we have great collaborations with the University of Miami. We have a cooperative institute there. Roughly half of our staff is cooperative institute employees. That always is great because you get great young people. The struggle there is, you know, you got government employees, you got university employees. How do you juggle their wants and needs when your partner is in charge of them and you're in charge of yours and you have to work together? So that's always a challenge. But We've been fortunate to have great directors at the cooperative institute. Ben Kurtman is currently our partner. Uh, right. Ben is phenomenal. Right. He's right. just great. And, you know, so we work with great people. Um, and I, when I started, I had a very young staff. They were all just starting their career. A lot of our older staff went over to NHC or went up to the NOAA headquarters in Washington. Um, and so I had to build them up. And then what? Right now, they're all cap They're all at my point in decision making in my career, where any one of them could become director. You know, they have the skill set. They've been mentored and they've learned how to deal with others and stuff. So it's a very different mindset, I would say. Um, but you learn that people matter. It's the gray matter between the ears, not the equipment. They, you know. So the things like the budget you know, the federal budget headaches and all that. So your job is to kind of buffer that and protect your people from it so that they can do the work. And for, you know, for some people um, taking on that role and doing less of the hands-on research is something they feel some reluctance to do. It doesn't sound like you struggled with it too much, but also you're still flying the storm. So somehow it, it hasn't taken you away that much from the, from the hands-on. It's something, I, it's something I love uh, to do. Um, and so... Right now, when I go, I'm going with younger staff who haven't had experience. Yeah. 
in the storms. And I'm trying to show them here you have a million, a hundred million dollar aircraft with all this equipment on it. And it's at your beck and call, you know, be responsible, you know, learn how to execute, learn how to manage your time and the cruise time. Each flight costs about $60,000 to do. Uh, without even yeah. the stuff we throw out of the plane, just the flight hours. And and so you want to make the best use of that resource. It's a phenomenal resource we have. And yeah, but it's not – I guess all I'm saying is it's not like you couldn't do it because, oh, I have to be at a meeting in Washington or something like that. I mean, you, you know, you, you yeah. haven't um, – I guess we're – I juggle. So I juggled a lot. Yeah, uh, there were times when I would have loved to have been in the air, you know, like in Katrina or Rita, but decided no, I'm better off. I have more other things to worry about, like getting new wings for P3s. Uh, that's what I was doing when Sandy formed. Was getting up in Washington arguing with NOAA leadership that we needed to rewing the P3s to get the data into the numerical models to make the forecast better, um, and uh. dealing with uh, Dr. Kathy Sullivan who I loved and worked for great. She was phenomenal. You know, convincing them when they have their own budget sweats that, you know, we need to spend $100 million on new wings for the P3s. And then Sandy happened and there was a supplemental and we got the money. And then we found out the Air Force had the wings already and gave them to us for $3 million and we had to give the $100 million back. So, you know, well, that's uh, actually a good story, but maybe that's for another uh, another time. I'd like to the details <laughs> of that, but maybe we shouldn't spend your la- uh, last minutes on that. But I mean, so the the um, I-, I feel like at this point, now that you're up to Sandy and what happened after that, uh, and your time as director, I feel like we should probably talk about the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Project because I know that's something you put a huge amount of effort into, and that's been a, a big project and a successful one from what I can see so far. And maybe you want to. I hope so. Say I mean, what happened I, there. I think it. Yeah, I think it was successful. So uh, I didn't mention, I went to Toga Corps somewhere in all of this uh, with the P3s. And Early 90s. Yeah. Uh, 92, 93. Um, and a good friend of mine, Rick Carbone, um, came up to me and said, hey, listen, Frank, I got this new position working for the U.S. Weather Research Program, and they want me to put together a plan uh, for the U.S. Weather Research Program. And so I said, sure. He said, if we get any hurricane stuff, would you be interested? I said, sure. So in 1997, he contacted me and said, hey, Frank, uh, we have these prospectus development teams we're putting together. um, And we've already had four of them. And we want to do one on hurricanes and landfall. Can you lead that? And I said, sure. So I got a couple of, a lot of colleagues together. We went up to spend three or four days in Tallahassee, put together a plan, got published in the bulletin, PDT-5, hurricanes and landfall, where we laid out what you needed to do to deal with impacts and then backed it out to the science, kind of like what NASA mm-hmm. does with their proposal process. Of course, it didn't fly, but I was able to put together a UCAR ASP colloquium on hurricanes at landfall in 98. We ran it in Boulder and Miami. Got this great group of young graduate students who are now the leaders in my division. <laughs> that was my my contact to get the manpower we needed was to do the UCAR colloquium. And we put together a, a workshop. We wrote a report, a technical memo that said NCAR on Hurricanes and Landfall. We read an implementation plan. All that came out of that was a joint hurricane test bed, all that work. And so when I became director, I said, okay, we got to bring this back up. And I kept pushing it. And finally, again, serendipitously, Hurricane Katrina Rita happened after the 2004 season of about seven storms hitting Florida. 
And Admiral Lautenbacher, who was the head of NOAA at the time, said to the one service, well, what did we do right and what can I go fight for? And they said, oh, no, we did yeah. fine. You know, we're, we're doing okay. And he got angry. And he asked the NOAA Science Advisory <laughs> Board to put a working group together to make recommendations on how we could do better. Uh, that working group was phenomenal. I staffed part of it. They wrote a report with 34 recommendations. I volunteered to write the plan to address all 34 recommendations. That plan mm -hmm. became the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Program project at the time. It was done in 2007, 2008. We put out a report about the same time that uh, the Office of Federal Coordinator put out their next 10-year plan, which I helped write. Uh, and the National mm -hmm. Science Council came out with their report on what we should do. Um, and so our plan was, okay, we have a model. Let's make it the best we can. Some of the recommendations, ah, don't waste your time with H-Work, go with work, do this, do that. So I didn't know much about models, but I had good people who could help me. H-Work um, and WARF being the numerical models used to predict hurricanes. Um, yeah. At the time, weather research was research using forecasting model. this model and the hurricane weather research and forecast model. NOAA had the hurricane weather research and forecasting model, which used the WARF structure, but had a different model mm -hmm. core, so to speak. Um, and so there was a war going on at that time uh, between NWS and NCAR, basically. Uh, Bill Skamarek and Zavisa. Because <laughs> WARF came uh, out of NCAR. I mean, this stuff is interesting. The institutional politics and the acronyms is, you know, a lot for some people. So the WARF uh, was developed at NCAR, but then ad adapted at the weather, uh, at NOAA. By the weather service, right. So you learn things about that when you're trying to do that. One, how, how, much, how big a high-performance computer you can run on. And the fact that you have to produce a product in 90 minutes every six hours. And so that became the struggle. And so the first thing we did was, okay, I asked the Hurricane Center to give me 50 cases, 50 storms. Um, and I gave it to, we had a meeting and we gave it to anybody who wanted it to run the model and produce results, whatever, you know, set configuration they wanted. And when we met a year later to talk about it, and we, we judged them all on a level playing field. There was one set of statistics calculated that the Hurricane Center ran. And I remember at that meeting, the hurricane specialist got up and said, if I'd known all these models were this bad, I would have given you easy cases. So basically, we found yeah. out that it didn't matter which model you use. They were all kind of not so good. And so that started our path down the road of building a, an infrastructure a capacity to do this kind of accelerated research that HFIP was funded to do. We were given a task to improve forecast guidance for tracking intensity by 50% in 10 years mm. and by 20% mm. in five years. And we were given roughly $20 million a year to do that, of which four or five million went into building the infrastructure for the computing. And so what we did was we set up a computer complex in Boulder and we got all the code converted, and we used a developmental testbed center in Boulder, which was a joint effort between NOAA and NCAR, to support the infrastructure, to t train people. People would be, we had uh, workshops on how to use the model, got it, the code all set. And within five years, we actually got to the 20% for both track and barely intensely, track definitely. 
then, of course, then the Noah budget stuff starts to happen. And a good friend of mine, Louis Uccellini, who was then the director, said, Frank, I hate to tell you, but I need to use the H-group money to pay my salaries. And right. so our budget got cut by a, more than half. And the other part of it was the weather service had all the money except right. for HRD's budget. HRD's budget was in my hands. And I said, right. how can we have a hurricane forecast improvement project if HRD's not involved? So what I did was right. I told Noah that I'm committing all of our resources to HFIP to make sure that this goes, and I'll deal with the research part. So I became the research lead to kind of steer things along, and we had development leads from NWS. We had uh, Bob Gall and Fred Tepfer were kind of running the project side and development side, and I was running the research side. And some of the research was external. A lot of it was external, funded by the Weather Service pot of money, and any collaborators we brought to the table were kind of carte blanche. They came with us. We had access oh. to the platforms, the aircraft, and we had people who knew how to run HWARF. And so we started working closely with the modeling center and developed the infrastructure and the manpower capacity to actually do the work that we said we had to do. I'd say the key to HFIP was we had clear operational goals, what the weather service wanted us to do. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to study secondary eyewall complexes or we're going to study rain bands and border seats and shear mm -hmm. and stuff. How do we improve the track? How do we improve the intensity? Of course, you've got to do all those other things to get there because you've yeah. got to make sure the model does them with some fidelity. Um, and yeah. so that's where the OBS came in. The OBS became the key because the Environmental Modeling Center and GFDL were not observationalists. They didn't have yeah. the roots in the data. They they trusted the best track, which I said, you know, yeah. is kind of data. It's best data we can put together for. Um, and so, you know, we worked hard together to change our mindsets to work as a team rather than as, you know, you do the modeling, you do the observations, and we'll figure it out. We actually merged the teams together and focused them on specific projects and brought our collaborators in through funding opportunities. My best story is Hu Ching Zhang. Uh, Hu Ching was a colleague who I had met, oh, in the mid, early 2000s when he was at Texas A&M. And he yeah. had picked my brain about how to use Doppler radar data. He was a data assimilation expert. Um, and he yeah. had a great bunch of students and he wanted to know how we could put the airborne Doppler radar in. So he decided to move to Penn State and he spent a month in Miami right at the beginning of HFIP. And I got a call from Fred Tepper, who was the director to the project manager at the time. He said, Frank, uh, the NOAA CIO just had a meeting where he met the NSF CIO, National Science Foundation Chief Information Officer. Met the NOAA one met him. And they have a new computer coming up in Texas called the hmm. Texas Advanced Computer Complex, or TAC. Uh, and they're putting a new machine online, and they want people to test it out to see what it can do. He said, so we got a million CPU hours. What can you do with it? So Fu Ching walked in that day, and I said, Fu Ching, I got an op a proposition for you. We got a million CPU hours on TAC. What can we do with it? And Fu Ching said, oh, we can run 100 ensembles. We can do this. We can do that. So I sent a note back to Fred, and I said, yeah, we can use it. We'll take care of it. Uh, let's get started. So he, Fu Ching ran Wharf. We had Wharf on TAC. Well, Fu Ching's there. He's also talking with us about how to get the airborne Doppler data automatically off yeah. the plane and into the model. 
So he's working yeah. with my staff on the Doppler radar data to automate that process, get it through the, the pipeline. This is 2008, July timeframe, yeah. August timeframe. By the time Fuching leaves, we have a storm that hits Florida. We actually get the data to go. He actually gets the model up. Fuching flies with us and we have some tests. We get the data through. And then Ike comes. Hurricane Ike mm. came into Cuba and then passed into the Gulf and was headed right at Texas. Now you can imagine Texas Advanced Computer Complex, they're freaking out because here's a storm heading right at, well, they're in Austin, but it's headed at Texas. And yeah, Fu yeah. and, and we're getting this data off and we're producing model output that they can visualize right there at TAC. Mm. Needless to say, Fu never had to ask TAC for any CPU time after that because it <laughs> made such a, such a, press opportunity for TAC and the computer complex that, you know, to this day, I still get notices from TAC about, you know, come to this, come to that. But uh, one thing I want to say about Vinching was he stuck with it. And yeah. he's a researcher. He's a professor at Penn State. He's got students. And he's working his tail off with us and Noah. And he's running his model in real time on our complex that we yeah. set up in Boulder. And yeah. he said to me, he said, the one thing I've learned, Frank, is that doing operations is hard. You can't fail. Yeah. Everything has to work every six hours. He said, I learned so much yeah. from that, that, and he passed it on to his students. And now I have a lot of his students on my staff who learned that lesson. And so it's been an interesting transition on research to operations and how that works. So it's, you know, it's just been so fortuitous to people I've known and have helped make this happen. A trip is a success because of them, not because of me. Well, I just want to reflect on a couple of things for a minute. First of all, I mean, I knew Fuching pretty well, and he died tragically a few years ago. He was not yet 50, if memory serves. And yeah, super, everybody who knew him, I mean, unbelievable, high energy. Uh, yeah. And But I mean, about a trip. So if I understood right, you said it started in 2008. Is that the right? Did I get that right? Uh, no, it started for me in 2008. We got our first budget in 2009. We got a supplemental. Okay. So yeah. So okay. So two thousand. So about then. So, but it started as you know. You started thinking about it already after Toga Core, which was fifteen years plus earlier. Right. So and then you know then it has been running for you know I guess eight is a trip over now or is it still is there another phase? No, we're still right? going. We got. Yeah, we got uh, the the weather act, the weather forecasting, research and forecasting improvement act in twenty seventeen. Uh, directed NOAA to continue a trip. So right. we're in our second 10-year window. We just finished. We're just finishing up our five-year uh, summary of the the third five years of a trip, which of course is highlighted right. by the hurricane analysis forecast system being spun up. Um, yeah, and I mean we've said for many you know for ages that hurricane track forecasts have been improving and intensity forecasts haven't, but they have been now, right? I mean, it seems to me like Correct. you guys have really made a dent in it as a consequence of this and that a big part of it, as per the story you were just telling, was the assimilation of the Doppler radar from the aircraft, which Fu Ching and others did. And just the thing, you know, the whole the one thing that impresses me about the arc of that whole story, starting from, you know, your experience at Toga Core, is that you've been part of it from the beginning and that not only is that, I mean, you said it's due to everybody else and not just you. And that's, you know, I'm sure that lots of people deserve credit. And I don't, you know, but it maybe there is something 
the, the amount of institutional memory, you know, the fact that you've been able to stick with this through all that time and be part of it all that time, not just at an administrative level, but also at a science level where the Doppler radar was like the first thing you did at NOAA. And that's been a key part of this project. I don't know. That's just something that has impressed me hearing this whole hearing you recount this whole thing, that there's a certain amount of um, just a lot of continuity there through you personally. I would agree with that. I mean, to me, it's been a, a challenge that I've really pursued. And, you know, now that it is successful, I felt not only that I could pass it on to the staff I have, but I've accomplished something in my career that I think is useful, uh, beneficial. Um, it kind of, it's not a reward. It's kind of great gratifying, I guess is the best term to use that to see this arc yeah. completed, um, you know, it, from plotting circuit A and circuit C on little maps in our classroom to where I am today, I, I it blows my mind to look back at that arc uh, that we just talked about. It's certainly been enjoyable at most of the time. Uh, certainly, I've forgotten all the bad stuff by now, I hope. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm sure that it's going to continue. I mean, we're having our workshop in two weeks for this year. You know, they want me to give a retrospective at this. Uh, hopefully, I'll be at the yeah. next one, too. But, you know, so I've been thinking about this arc a little bit, to, as you know, from listening to me, trying to prepare for that, uh, you know, and the timeline of these things. <laughs> yeah. It's been a joyful struggle. Yeah. I mean, so I, I've taken up a lot of your evening but there's one more thing i feel like i would be remiss not to ask you and i don't know really know how to phrase it as a question but you know when we get um young people who want to enter our field they come with a lot of different motivations and nowadays a lot of them are concerned about climate but you know there's a lot still and always have been a lot who are who are just motivated by weather since they're young to one degree or another in the way that you were, whether it's through personal experience or, or, or whatever, but weather captures a lot of people's imagination. And, you know, I often feel like it's hard to sort of satisfy the needs of some of those or the wishes of some of those students. Cause you know, then they get down to it and it's all math and stuff. And they, <laughs> But the thing that like the most exciting thing that kind of, you know, so many people is like the epitome of what makes it, um, you know, a glamorous or a career they think is glamorous, whether it's really glamorous or not is, 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 is another question, but is flying through a hurricane. That's a thing that, you know, people <laughs> want to, a lot of people want to do. I don't want to do it because I get motion sickness and I don't think, it, you know, I, <laughs> I don't think I'd be any use, but, you know, I just wonder what reflections you have. I mean, you've done it about as much as a person can do it. I would say, well, one, I'm motivated by what, I guess thinking that the flying in the storm has multiple benefits. One, we want to get the data off and get it to the ground for to help warn people, uh, you know, protecting lives and property. And I think a lot of my staff, you know, they work their tail off because they have this belief that that information that we're providing is important. And I would say the air crew is the same way. They go out there recognizing that they're doing this for the good of others, not just themselves. Um, right. And I th and I think, one, I get ex excited. Uh, having been in the field for as many years as I and doing field work, 
to me, field work is exciting to do. You know, sitting at a desk and writing papers and doing analysis, that's also enjoyable. But there's nothing like getting out in the environment. And I think you're right. The, the beauty of the atmospheric sciences and oceanographic sciences in some ways is that you're out in the element. You don't have to look at yeah. a test tube or anything like that. You know, it could be you could have a representation or characterization of it on a computer screen. But there's nothing like getting out there. And I always try and encourage even my numerical modeling partners to come on a flight so they can see what it takes to get the information that they need. And almost all of them step away from that with a different perspective. It's one thing to model something and think about, well, if I change the diffusion or I change the grid, grid length or I change this parameterization, that it makes a difference. And then you go out and you see the real thing and you realize, well, wait a second, this is not as simple as I thought. There's a lot of complexity out here. So that is enjoyable. Uh, just doing that because you're learning. I, I don't think there's been a flight I haven't learned something. When I yeah. thought I knew something, I get in trouble. Now, I won't talk about the Hugo story because that's another sidebar. Uh, being at okay. five, 500 meters and losing one engine at Cat 5 is not fun. Yikes. But that aside, there's nothing like breaking out into the eye and seeing Mother Nature in all her glory. Uh, or just yeah. flying to the storm and seeing the the halos from the rain falling down. I mean, it's just the natural beauty is there. And the thing about a hurricane is you go from the most wonderful weather into the worst thing you can imagine in a very short time and out the other side. Uh, and you do that repeatedly. Yeah. So, you, you know, people ask me, isn't it dangerous? And I always say, well, you know, I like Churchill's quote about war. It's 95% boredom and 5% sheer terror when I describe a hurricane flight. If you don't like turbulence, it's probably not your bag. Uh, but if you are you like roller coasters or you like, you know, the ride a Disney ride where you kind of feel like you're moving, hurricane's okay for you. You'll be fine. Um, you know, uh, we fly a lot safer. Um, we've never had an accident in NOAA. Uh, there hasn't been a plane accident in a hurricane since before 1980. You know, it's a very safe. I always say it's safer than driving the car to the airport. And that's definitely true in Miami. The things you can see and the things you learn are incredible every time you go out there because they are rare events. You don't get to see, you know, and they're like, I always describe them like people. They have a life cycle. Yep. They start out small. Yep. They're skinny. They get a little fatter, they go through evolution, you know, <laughs> lose some weight, gain some weight, and then they die. You know, so it, it, and, you know, they're all different. They all have different unique structures because they're in a four-dimensional fluid that's evolving. Um, and timing is so important. Where you are in time and space is so critical to how it's going to evolve. Well, there's two things I always say to students. One, how do you define a center? And they say, oh, well, it's where the wind goes to zero. I said, but what altitude? What about the pressure? You know, right. there's centers change with height. The other thing I say right. is you have, if you think about it, there are 86,400 seconds in 24 hours. If you have a one meter per second error in the motion of the storm, you will be off by 86.4 kilometers in 24 hours. That's about 64 nautical miles. So yeah. the fact that we do that in 24 hours tells you that we're pretty darn good already. 
But how do we get down below that 86.4 kilometer error in 24 hours? Of course, that doubles and the second day and triples and so on. And so those are the rules I go by when I talk to people about it. It's just fascinating to be out there. I learned so much in the camaraderie of working with the people on the plane who worked so hard to get the information off. This past flights in Tammy, we were throwing two and a half pound unmanned aerial systems out of the plane and they were flying for 74 minutes down in the boundary layer. It was incredible. I mean, the tools were starting to get now. Yeah, drones, two and a half pounds. And then we threw out another one that's about 20 pounds and that was flying down there. And, you know, these things are ideas we're testing out to see how we can improve the information we get. And that's always intriguing. The new instrumentation that you mentioned earlier, there's an evolution that the instrumentation, the ideas follow that. Um, And that's been a good arc in my career path too. I've enjoyed it very much. So sometimes when you're you're sort of you know, you're thinking about the science and what you're learning and you have the admiration of the beauty of Mother Nature. But when it's sometimes a dangerous storm close to landfall, do you ever feel the weight of that? I mean, the, you know, the fact yes. that this is going to be a bad thing for some people. Yes. I have a lot of family along the west coast of Florida. Uh, so you can imagine with yeah. Ian and Adalia and Irma. I mean, yeah. we we live in Hurricane Alley. OK, so I've been on yeah. the ground. I went through Hurricane Andrew in yeah. my house. Um, and so we know what the impacts are. And so that's always in the back of your mind. How bad is it going to be? You know, how bad, you know, we're pushing our, our tail to make that better. Uh, and like I said, I, I've been out on, you know, post storm assessments and you listen to people about what their feeling is about them, what we tell them. And so Mm -hmm. that's a sidebar for students of the future. One of the things that the Weather Act instructed HRIP to address is communication of uncertainty of the risk of hazards. And so we're now partnering with social behavioral economic scientists, just like the climate community is, to try and figure out how to best communicate the the risks of the hazards. Um, And I always say that climate is local. My climate is different than your climate in New York City. Uh, my impacts are going to be different. And, you know, right yeah. now, climate science is focused on the big picture, and we're starting to try and figure out how to scale down. I'm in the same yeah. boat with hurricanes because they're not going away. Mm. No matter what climate scenario you imagine, hurricanes are still there. Right. And so yeah. that's why I feel climate is important, but making sure that we can deal with the local impacts is also important. And that's where I think we're going in NOAA in the future is getting down to that level and how to deal with the uncertainty of it. Uh, I mean, how do you you deal with that? I mean, I'm not blowing smoke up your butt, but I thoroughly enjoyed your talk about the rainfall in New York City from the uh, the storm in two years ago, where you told me something that blew my mind, that the huh. subways and the New York City infrastructure, if they get more than 1.75 inches of rain in 24 hours, they're up the creek without a paddle. That, to me, was a stunning revelation, and I appreciated that. I use that quote almost everywhere I go now. It was the one that blew up over New York City after it made landfall in Louisiana and came up. Ida, yeah, that was Ida. Ida, Ida. Yeah. 
Yeah. But where and did you I talk gave about a that? great talk about the rainfall situation in New York. Oh. And that stuck in my mind. 1.75 inches. It's ingrained. It burned into my brain. <laughs> oh, that's great. I, I, thought, I know I did that, but I thought I only did it internally at Columbia. I'm trying to think, where did I? No, you were in my that's session. Great. It was the, the facet session oh. at, at the conference. Oh. You gave a talk just before okay. mine where I talked about the local okay. impact. Okay, yeah. No, that was an amazing – I mean, that. well, you know, see, I don't get to do as much field work as you. I mean, you've referred a few times to me doing field work, but I, I've had – you know, I've done it more than the typical modeler, but much less than somebody for whom fieldwork is their thing. So I don't, you know, I have, don't have that many chances. So when these things hit New York, you know, it's a little bit like fieldwork for me. I pay attention, you know, you pay attention in a different way. This is why I tell people to go in the field, because it doesn't matter, even if you never write a paper about it, you, you just pay attention in a different way. You know, you can see all the data from your desk, but it's just, you just don't, you just don't experience it the same way. So well, the New York storms have been really uh, transformational for me. I, the way I look at it is you've taken some of your work with uh, climate, you know, where you have to, you know, be clear on what you're saying, uh, attribution type stuff, and you're applying it to synoptic type weather systems uh, and mm -hmm. looking at it in a way that I don't think the average observationalist would look at it. So I really appreciated your insight that time. Oh wow, Frank, that's very uh, that's very moving. Thank you. I wasn't blowing smoke up your butt, but it it stuck in my head. Well, anyway, it's yeah, no, I, I, I it's great to hear. Um, so yeah, I kept you a long time. Is there anything else we should have talked about that we didn't from your? That you want? Well, to there say? probably is, but I don't want to. I don't want to bore you with more of my tales. <laughs> oh no, it's not boring. You know, you've been at the center of so much that's happened and. Uh, in our field and hurricanes are such a important thing and um, you know the you're at you're between the re, you know close to the operations but you're doing research and you're flying through the storms but connecting to the modeling and it's just uh you know it's a there's a lot there so uh, anyway great to hear about all of it and uh, you know good to know that you're still doing it um, even if even if uh, part-time now right yeah, uh, I went. There, Noah has something called phase retirement. So I go to half pay, work half time. But uh, as you can imagine, with hurricane flights, that's hard to do half time. Uh, I'm struggling with that bit at, at the moment. <laughs> How you to work half time, time in the winter? Be, yeah, half time in the winter. I'll be off all winter. Be off all winter. <laughs> All right. Well, it's great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Frank. Um, really appreciate your time and and interest. Well, it's in been this. a pleasure. I've often liked. I like to talk with you. I like to okay. listen to your podcast, especially. I. Oh, it's such an honor to hear that from you, Frank. Okay. Well, uh, maybe we'll do it again. But thanks again. What a gracious and kind guy, and what a remarkable career he's had. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about climate and models and so on, but we thought we'd close out the season with somebody who's intimate with the weather, and Frank is the real deal if anyone is. Such a pleasure to talk to him. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli, and our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, 
where our editor, post producer, and audio engineer is Eugenio Gonzalez. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. <laughs>